welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 269. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, we have a special guest with us. Yeah, we're excited about it. Christine Sign to talk about her book, The Gift of Wonder. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. It's a delight to be with you. Yeah, it's good to have you here as well. And uh, we should tell you, even though you said that you were a doctor in a previous life, it's still Dr. Christine Sign. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, yes. I, I tell people uh, when my husband Tom and I were first married and we'd get letters that were addressed to Dr. Tom and Christine Sign, and I'd say, hey, I'm the real doctor in this, this family, you know. Exactly. It should be doctor. He's a PhD yeah. doctor. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, the one, like, you're the one that somebody would want if it, their life depended on it. Yeah, or like someone said, you're one of those, you're a doctor that can do something. <laughs> that, that's it. At, at least back then I could. I'm not sure how much I could do now, but. Uh, what, what did they yes. say when, when they called for a doctor? Bugs Bunny used to always say he was, doctor, kill patient, doctor, kill patient. <laughs> <laughs> that would be yeah, a tough name yeah. to go to medical school with. I, I Hopefully suppose. not. I yeah. actually have had to, um, not for a long time, but um, respond to calls on planes for doctors. All oh, right, uh, you're that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which was always interesting, you know. Um, but since most of my medical practice was in third world cultures, uh, in the days when I was asked to respond to calls and um, Planes at that point had no kind of medical gear on board at all. I think I was probably better equipped than uh, <laughs> most doctors would have been to respond to the kinds of things that uh, you know I was asked to do. So yeah. that was interesting. Yeah. You have you have to respond positively, right? Because of the Hippocratic Oath, you can't take a pass, right? Oh, oh no. Well, and in a couple of situations, it was, do we land? Uh, you know, was the question: <clears throat> Do we land or do we keep flying? You know, and uh, yeah. do, do you do you pull the, uh, the the plane? Like, okay, anybody on a significant thing? Is anybody a bride or a groom? Destination wedding? Is there <laughs> anything we can't possibly? You know, are there are there things that are like, okay, well, you can reschedule your vacation. I mean, how do you? What do you even factor in on that? Uh, the health of the patient. In yeah. one case, um, I decided the patient probably had meningitis. And, um, you know, it was serious enough that I did have to say, I'm sorry, we're going to have to land yeah. um, because I was concerned um, about the, you know, I mean, it was a life and death possibility. Right. Um, so, yeah, now fortunately, usually it's much more minor than that, but um, <laughs> uh, that, was, that was one where it was a very serious kind of decision that I had to make, so... Well, scary stuff. I, yeah, I've never been on a flight where they said, "Are there any clergy present?" But if my guess that that, that would be not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, the power of Christ compels you. With the exorcist. <laughs> or you know, we need you to do one mass last rites. Things are bad. But yeah, well, I, yeah, mass last rites. Yeah, that would be that would be rough. Yeah, Christine, yeah. you've written that new book, "The Gift of Wonder," and what's interesting is that you 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 did this online poll. Uh, asking what are the childlike questions you did on Facebook 
what are childlike characteristics that make us fit for the kingdom? And you were astounded that people were pretty good at this. Playfulness, awe and wonder, imagination, curiosity, love of nature, compassion, unconditional trust. But when you ask people where they find joy in God, it's more like a cricket's response, right? (laughs) People tend to not, people tend to have a harder time with that question than the childlike question. Oh, it's true. Um, And uh, actually, I think the sad thing is that they don't, firstly, they don't equate joy in God with childlikeness, but they also don't tend to uh, take that question of unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the, the kingdom. They don't tend to take it seriously. I think that was the uh, very sad thing I realized um, as I did this poll. I mean, because several people said, hey, I don't think I've ever been asked this before. And then, uh, you know, asking the question, well, how do you live these things out? It was like, ah, well, I'm not sure that I do. You know, I'm not sure that I live these out, particularly as spiritual practices or as things that help connect me to God. And and I think that was part of what resulted in me doing some research. I feel this is where it was a real advantage to have the training as a medical doctor because I was able to look at research not just from a biblical perspective but from a scientific and a medical perspective to say, hey, what are the benefits of these kind of characteristics? You know, what does play do for us? What does imagination do for us? Uh, What does love of nature do for us that might be preparing us for the kingdom? And it it was a real, it was a revelation for me. And I think um, it's an ongoing revelation for other people as well, which is fascinating. And it seems like most people, well, oftentimes we marginalize the things Jesus says, but at least with the, the, with the more austere commandments, we at least pretend to take them seriously. Like, all right, we really should, we really should love other people. We really should be like yeah. peacemaking and forgive people. But it's like with the childlike stuff, we don't even feel the need to actually pay lip service to it very often. That's just so marginal, right? Oh, it's true, you know, and um, uh, and what do we do with the kids in church? You know, we send them away so that we can't even notice the kids and the childlike characteristics that we need. You know, it's kind of like that might mess up our service. That yeah. might, uh, you know, kind of make it a little more chaotic, uh, us too. And, and we don't notice things. I mean, that was part of what I became aware of as I was working on this is how often Jesus says something like, unless you become like children. Um, And we don't notice the children uh, in in the ways that we should. I mean, one of my, uh, the classic examples I talk about in uh, the gift of wonder is when the little boy comes uh, to Jesus with the fish and the loaves. And and you think of the artwork <clears throat> that you've probably seen of this image. You, you know, you've got Jesus, you've got the disciples, you've got all the adults, and you've got one little kid, uh, you know, coming up to Jesus. And I can tell you it would not have been like that. Um, you know, and probably uh, one of the things I sense of what this um, this occasion could have looked like was working in Africa. You know, because every mm-hmm. time uh, we would go into a village in Africa, you had have a would have a whole gaggle of kids right. surrounding you. And I think, you know, that's what it must have been like up on that hill. And these little kids, I can just imagine them uh, coming up to Jesus with their friend and kind of egging their friend on and pushing him forward and giggling and laughing and, and telling him, you can do it, and, and believing that Jesus could do a mar- miracle. 
and make these loaves and fish into enough to feed 5,000. Whereas here are the disciples, you know, you read this story and the disciples say, oh, we can't send them away, you know, it's too far away, we haven't got enough money, uh, you, know, you know, kind of they're doing all the serious stuff, trying to figure it out. And, and only the kids really, I think, believed that Jesus could perform a miracle. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of a little bit of a different interpretation, but just knowing uh, what those villages must have looked like in those days, I think it's not the way that we tend to imagine it. There would have been kids all over the place, and, and I do believe that, that they were the ones that realised the potential of what Jesus could do. Yeah, this is both a confession and an affirmation. You know, I, as I told Scott, this wouldn't be a book naturally I would be I would gravitate to, which is probably why I needed it and <laughs> really appreciated it. Uh, and I think for me, one of the things was just the joyful, grace-filled way uh, that you opened up a different angle on spiritual practices, those that you know we would be familiar with. Uh, but then even some of the different ways that uh, things that we're familiar with, as well as new ones, that you had different angles. I, I love this idea that you uh, have in the book about spiritual practices that restore and transform. Uh, okay. I, yeah, okay. that would be – because there are some people, Some there's a segment of our audience that are kind of suspicious of anything that comes – anything close that they would say – would be any kind of works. I think that's one of our <laughs> ongoing, uh, we have a friendly, usually it's friendly debate with those folks. But I, I think uh, the invitation here is so grace-filled. And I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the idea of restoring and transforming practices. Yeah, this was something that I came across um, probably close to 20 years ago now. And it was an anthropologist, Paul Hebert, that introduced me to this concept because when he worked with primitive tribes in Central and South America, he decided that they had two kinds of rituals in their communities. They had those that renewed and those that transformed. And renewing uh, rituals, and as I read this, I thought, wow, this is, this is the language that I need to describe the kinds of um, disciplines and, and practices that I think I need in, in my faith. And uh, renewing practices are the ones that we do every day or on a regular basis. This is like uh, morning prayer, going to church on Sunday. These are the things that on a regular basis say, hey, this is what's important to me. This is what I believe and this is what I want to connect to on a regular basis. Um, and then the transforming practices uh, are the practices that give room for change uh, because, you know, unfortunately any kinds of uh, practices and that we do on a regular basis can become stale uh, and sometimes they can even make us stagnate because, you know, they say, hey, I'm going to hold on to this no matter what. I'm not open to change. And yet I think that part of the journey of faith is that we need to recognize that change needs to happen at intervals during our lives. I mean, just as we change, as we grow older, um, you know, I think that our faith needs to change as we become more mature. Um, and so we need practices like um, <clears throat> retreats, uh, like conferences, like going on pilgrimage, these kind of things uh, 
that say, hey, it's time for change. You know, I need to move to the next level. Uh, I need to be able to uh, practice in a way. I, I need fresh practices. I need refreshment of my existing practices. And so that's what transforming practices are. Um, and, you know, if we don't have those, I think we can stagnate in our faith. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butrin, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. It's interesting because you quote in the book, Hans von Balthasar's book, Lest You Become Like This Child. And what's so interesting about children, right, is if a seven-year-old or a 70-year-old tells you you don't look very attractive or your outfit is silly or, or something like that, it's probably true, right? I mean, <laughs> because under seven, you probably don't have a good enough filter yet. And over 70, you just don't have enough time to, to filter. Care. Or you don't care, right? But but sometime probably after seven and in between seven and 70 is where we learn these, like, these artful kind of filters, right? And, and you talk about how von Balthasar thinks that part of this childlikeness, which is different than childishness, this childlikeness is 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 about entering into a place of dependence. But you think it's more than that, right? It's not just freedom from independence. It's freedom for some stuff, right? For an unfiltered life, for this kind of approach to life that is maybe less guileful. <laughs> anyway, if that's a helpful word. <clears throat> well, uh, yeah, and he talks about, um, you know, some of the characteristics that we need uh, to become more childlike. And I'm glad you made that distinction between childlike and childish because we're not talking about becoming childish, uh, though I think sometimes we could do with becoming a little more childish. But, you know, <laughs> the, but we do lose the characteristics of childlikeness. Um, as we grow, you know, into adulthood. I mean, and partly because we're told, oh, you know, you 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 can't, you, you've got to discipline yourself. You've got to uh, put boundaries around yourself. You've got to, you know, kind of restrict yourself in this way or that way. 
or things like that. You know, you can't go out and play. Uh, you can't spend time daydreaming. Uh, you know, um, trees are green. They're not blue. You know, we, we, we don't make room for that kind of imagination. And I think that part of what Balthazar um, suggests is that we need these kinds of practices. Oh, well, he doesn't talk about needing these practices, but that we've got to make room for these childlike characteristics uh, that Jesus exhibited and that really do draw us closer to God. You know, not that Jesus saw trees as blue, but he definitely saw the world with a much more imaginative kind of filter than we do. Um, you know, and a filter of awe and wonder. You know, this is one of the things that I, I talk about quite a, a lot in the book is our need to rediscover awe and wonder. Um, I was, um, I was, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I, I was researching the chapter on awe and wonder uh, at the time of the solar eclipse a couple of years ago. And, of course, it was perfect time to do it because there was a lot of research coming out uh, about awe and wonder. Uh, and, you know, research that said, you know, kids experience awe and wonder 20 times a day. Uh, but adults rarely do. Mm. Um, and, the, and the research suggests that a daily dose of awe and wonder makes us more caring and compassionate people. Um, this is like the difference awe. between a four-year-old and a 14-year-old at the zoo, right? A four-year-old, everything looks like a mythical creature. When you're oh, 14, yeah. uh -huh. you're kind of like, all right, I'm done. I've seen elephants. I've seen tigers. Next. Yeah, what's next, you know, and, and no sense of, of the wonder of something, you know. But there is, uh, the research suggests, you know, care, it makes us more caring and compassionate. It can heal us. Uh, it can help relieve depression. Um, you know, and, and I think, wow. <laughs> and I think it makes us more spiritual people. I mean, you think of how often uh, in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms, you know, it talks about awe and wonder. Um, uh, you, I can't think of a direct quote, but, you know, I, the, the awesomeness of creation, the, the awe with which David and the other writers of the Psalms look at God, I, I mean, it's just amazing. Um, and as a result of um, some of this research, my husband and I decided to call our daily walks, we go on three-mile walks every day, we started to call them our awe and wonder walks. Hmm. And so we started pointing out to each other the things that gave us a sense of awe and wonder. Um, and, I mean, it started as just a kind of a, oh, let's do this kind of thing for a little while. And it became such an important focus for not only um, helping us to recognise the wonder of what God had created, but also... God who had created it in fresh ways. And it was just absolutely beautiful. Did, did you go uh, for so one of these walks? That. I mean, it's what, two did, years later? Did you go for one Sorry? of these walks yesterday? Yes. What, what yes. was wonderful and awe-inspiring yesterday for each of you? Well, um, at the moment, of course, here in Seattle, we're at the end of a very long, beautiful springtime. Uh, and so a lot of what gives us the sense of awe and wonder at the moment is what are the flowers that are in bloom, the colour of the leaves, you know, the changing colour of the leaves from light green to dark green. Uh, yesterday it was the canopy of the trees, uh, you know, which, of course, in winter um, there's just the skeleton of the trees, but now the canopy of the trees um, over 
from the sidewalk and over the road and around the path that we walk around, just awe-inspiring as far as I'm concerned. So those were some of the things that we pointed out to each other. And, of course, always the beauty of Mount Rainier, our gorgeous mountain here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, And and those are the things that give us a sense of awe and wonder. You know, it's interesting you say that. You you mentioned about we as contemporary people have a lot of echo um, deprivation. You know, we're, we're not we're not in nature as much. And you're, that walk, uh, Gerald Hopkins, the, the great Jesuit priest, mm-hmm. uh, poet, part of his discipline was that daily walk in nature, and a lot of his poetry really came from that discipline of oh. observation. Oh, yeah. interesting. I didn't know that. I love his poetry, yeah, but I know no. very little about his life. No, yeah. no it's an interesting thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what are the things I... Um, that really kind of intrigued me. I mean, it's, is this idea of the question you asked, what would happen if we designed our spiritual practices with God and neighbor in mind? Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think that's kind of a unique way. I mean, we, most of us are very, you know, we know the great commandments, love God, love our neighbor. We've thought a lot about how those two things are connected. I don't know if I've ever quite thought about doing spiritual disciplines with both those things in mind. Uh, yeah. No, and, and I hadn't. It was actually an idea that came from um, a friend of mine uh, who was redesigning his garden. And he thought, well, what if I design my garden with God and neighbor in mind? Uh, and first of all, he started to think um, about his backyard and how he wanted to, to make it a more contemplative space uh, where he could really connect to God on a more intimate basis. Uh, and so he, he took out all the, the square corners because he said, you know, God never creates anything with square corners. And it. it's always, you know, flowing kind of patterns. He said it was actually a lot easier uh, to create a garden like that and with curving tracks and things like that. Beautiful. And he did. It created, uh, I mean, it's a small garden, but it's a, you know, beautiful uh, kind of garden that he created so that you really are drawn into a sense of the presence of God in it. And then he said, I want to create my front garden with my neighbours in mind. Um, and so he thought about, well, what do I want to do? Firstly, he said, well, I don't want to create any barriers for them. So he took out his front fence um, and then he put in uh, a couple of seating places for people. Uh, and then he cr- uh, created a a little herb garden and a tea garden uh, and and said, you know, with a sign that said, help yourself and with recipes that people could use for the use of these things. And then he put in a free, uh, a little free library, you know, so that there was an invitation to people mm. to come into this space and to be a part of the space that he had created. It was just beautiful. And I thought, you know, um, now mo- most of us aren't gardeners, uh, but, you know, if, if we gave that same kind of thought to the kinds of things that we do and the spaces that we dwell in, uh, I wonder how different they would look. Um, you know, what would, um, you know, what, and, and he lives in a fairly, in a more rural kind of an area, but what would you do in an urban situation that would give more of a sense of neighbour um, to the place that you're in? Um, I saw a sign recently that said <clears throat> on the side of a of a building that said, all are welcome here. 
uh, basically. And it was an invitation. It was a meeting place, this, this building. And, I mean, that was an invitation to neighbour to be a part of this space and to come in. And I thought, you know, that's a, a simple way uh, that that group of people had invited others into their community. And, uh, you know, this, of course, could look very different for different people. But um, I think just asking that question and spending that some time reflecting on it and allowing the spirit to kind of guide us into whatever direction God would have us take, I think would be revelatory in many different ways. You have a chapter in the book called Let Your Life Speak, and you talk about the significance of nostalgia and memory and telling your story for joy and, and, and a full life. And you talk about the first time you drew your own life story, you were surprised that you weren't a part of it. You drew your parents and your siblings, and you weren't in it. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and which led to some exploration on your part. I mean, that, that that's a pretty arresting story. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, it was. It, it was, it, you know, um, it was. It was revelatory. And I looked at this, I thought, wow, what's what's wrong with it? You know, firstly, obviously there's something wrong with this if I don't <laughs> see myself as being that. And and then it reminded me that um, I was a, a premature baby and spent the first month of my life in hospital, you know, and so in many ways disconnected from my family. Um, and that had shaped me in ways that I hadn't even realised. Um, and so it was exploring some of that. I, I have a good friend, a, a pastor in Melbourne, uh, Australia, who actually did his doctorate on um, uh, <clears throat> premature infants and, you know, the struggles that they have as they grow up and things like that. And one of them is this sense of disconnection from people, a feeling that they were abandoned. Mm. Um, but for me, you know, just drawing this um, um, this image of my growing up years was healing for me because I sat, I remember sitting there and imagining myself. I, I, I think I talk about also um, uh, imagining our life story with God at the centre. And it was as I imagined that part of my story with God at the center that I had this incredible sense of the presence of God. And it was like God said to me, you were not alone. I was with you. Uh, and that sense, and, and God kind of walked me through that early time of my life, uh, renewing that sense of what it was really like from God's perspective and, and, and a, a whole new and healing way of looking at that story. It was just beautiful. Um, a very, very precious and um, very important aspect of my life. Yeah, one of the things that's great about the book is you offer, first of all, it, it really invites community interaction. And I'm guessing and you imply that a lot of these exercises have been born out of your various experiences in, of Christian community and worked out in some of those places. It's very practical. There are a lot of things that are that are, you know, exercises, how to do exercises. You, you give us prayers to pray. You give group exercises. What kind of, um, what have you seen as people have tried to implement some of this stuff, whether individually or corporately? I know it's a new book, but uh, I'm sure it's born out of, out of your own experience using these things. Uh, well, it is. Um, you know, in fact, many of the exercises that I do have come out of uh, facilitating workshops in which I've used these, um, you know, simple things like <laughs> painting on rocks, <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, which is it's like painting on rocks and spiritual practice. It kind of 
doesn't sound uh, very kind of spiritual to many people. And yet I found um, that this was something that people not only delighted in doing, but that gave them a sense. Uh, I, I mean, people love to do it. I, I would usually send people out into the neighbouring area uh, and get them to bring back a rock and then paint it. You know, that was uh, the ideal kind of situation. And as people painted the rocks and interacted with each other, it often brought up amazing stories of interaction with God, sometimes stories of vulnerability. Um, you know, people kind of relaxed in a way that they don't normally do uh, in a workshop and they were willing to share things um, that they wouldn't normally share. And so these kind of practical exercises I found increased people's uh, spiritual openness um, and I think the depth of the result often uh, might greater as well. I, I, you have a section in the book on the significance of curiosity, and I'm wondering, in a tribal culture, I wonder is is the tribalism of our culture a real imp, imp, impediment to that? I think about like uh, when there was a poll done a couple of years ago that showed. Republicans generally responded more favorably to the NFL than Democrats until the the whole Colin Kirkpatrick thing and the kneeling for the for the national anthem and then of course Democrats like the NFL more than Republicans it's almost like whatever your tribe or religious team or political team is you have you sort of have an opinion on everything and it seems like if you have those kind of fixed tribal lenses it's tough to imagine or be curious right or be surprised because your team kind of tells you the lens through which to see, to see life. I mean, is that a stumbling block to the kind of childlikeness you're inviting people to here? I think it's a stumbling block, but I think that one of the reasons it's a stumbling block is because we're not uh, encouraged to um, use our curiosity and our imagination. You know, we're basically told, hey, this is the way you're supposed to think. This is the way you're supposed to look at this. Don't you dare think outside this boundary. Um, and so we're discouraged from having that curiosity. We're discouraged from asking questions that might have us moving outside those boxes. <clears throat> and it can be scary, of course, you know, because the moment we start asking questions, um, we often do have to step outside the boxes that we've been living in, you know, the, uh, the kind of ideas that we've been living in. Uh, but I think that we need to do that. We all need to do that. Um, and sometimes I think. Part of the curiosity is being willing to sit down and listen to um, the people on the other side of the conversation. You know, I mean, that's part of what lack of curiosity or um, the discouragement of expressing curiosity has done for us. It said, not only are these people wrong, but don't listen to anything that they say. Um, you know, be it about religion, be it about sport, be it about um, you know, politics, whatever it is, uh, we're discouraged from listening to the person that has a different viewpoint. And, and I think that that's the tragedy of our society these days. Um, you know, we we have so many barriers. Um, and unfortunately, I think we're into building more barriers rather than trying to break those down. Um, but questioning helps us to break down those barriers, curiosity helps us to break down those barriers. And, and you look at the way 
Jesus was, he was constantly asking questions of people, you know, questions that helped them to break down their barriers. I mean, that was a big part, I think, of what he did. Um, you know, he often didn't give them the answers, uh, but he asked the questions that enabled them to reach into themselves to find answers. And as a result of that, you know, wow, look at the explosion. I mean, Christianity wouldn't have happened if people hadn't um, thought about the questions that Jesus asked, if they hadn't learned to ask questions themselves, and if they hadn't been willing to look outside the boxes that they'd grown up with. And it's hard um, to ask questions, right? So often I feel like questions, like you go to a, a talk or a conference or a gathering, and really questions are disguised comments or editorials or, I mean, it's, I, I, I can count like in, in memory, the amount of times I've actually seen someone ask a question that really was out of it's an attempt to solicit a conversation and really, you know, really seeking knowledge. So often questions are scripted sort of traps or, or posturing, right? I mean, that that's, you, you invite people to really actually get to asking real questions. Yeah. I like that part where you said, if everyone agrees, that <laughs> one exercise, if you're in a group where everybody has the same opinion, you should, so you should assign the alternative uh, uh, position of people in the group. It's a to Jewish, yeah. yeah, it's a rabbinical uh, exercise, but it's it's a great it, idea. It is. You know, evidently that was a rabbinic uh, yeah, exercise yeah. where they believed that there had to be a dissident voice. Although my uh, experiences with rabbis, it was never hard to find somebody who was dissident. <laughs> well, and... and Part of that was because this was permissible. Yeah, it was allowed know? or expected, uh, yeah. even expected. Yeah. It was expected yeah. Yeah. Uh, because this was part of the way that they learned. And I think that we've, um, as you say, I mean, we've kind of basically said, nope, um, you know, you don't ask questions. Or if you do ask questions, as you said, it's a loaded question that only has one answer. You know, it's not really to help you expand your knowledge. It's to help you get more uh, ground down into the viewpoint that I want you to have type of thing. Yeah, and yeah. so asking those questions um, with no agenda in terms of what answer a person comes up with, trusting the Holy Spirit and, in fact, enabling people uh, in the asking of those questions to really um, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in new ways. I think that's part of what asking good questions is about. Um, it opens us up to the Holy Spirit if we do it properly. Um, and, and that is both refreshing and scary, yeah. you know. Um, it's, it, but that's what the Spirit's about. Heck, you know, no wonder the Spirit is referred to as the wind. <laughs> you know, you can't control the wind. Yeah. Uh, we don't even know where it's going to go, you know, or anything like that. Uh, but, but we need to trust that God is in control um, and sometimes it's, it, you know, what happens as a result of the movement of the spirit is far more profound than anything we could ever have imagined. You know, if we allow the spirit to move in the directions that God wants it to move in. Yeah. Well, you know, what thing I appreciated many things about the book, you had such a broad uh, number of sources and, and a lot of different from a lot of different perspectives. Really, it's a rich uh, resource, resource book in that way. Obviously, it also reflected years of your own practice and, and the depth of that. Uh, did anything surprise you in the process of, of writing the book, um, whether it be something you've discovered about yourself or a particular grace that was involved in, in producing this work? Um, 
I think um, initially I, I was surprised by uh, how, in, in many ways, lacking in joy, uh, a lot of my experience of Christian faith had been, mm. you know, because I had grown up with a very austere uh, view of God. And so to be introduced through this process to a God who delighted in joy, delighted in laughter, uh, who delighted in me in a lighthearted way, uh, that was probably the biggest surprise um, and the biggest joy as well. Mm. Uh, it, it really was a joy because I know that much of my life had been spent, um, you know, looking at God from a, a pretty austere kind of perspective. It, you, there's a, a movement called Creative Mornings where it's in like 50 cities now across the world. And, and it's artists and entrepreneurs and other creatives and they, they have a speaker and they have, you know, questioned table time together. But they they often have you know, your name tag, you put Scott or Bill or Christine, and then they'll have something you put on your name tag as well. And one of the questions they had was actually a, a subtitle, one of the chapters in your book. They had people write their name, and then what would you do if you were not afraid? <laughs> and so people had to introduce each other, their name, and then say that. And you talk about one Lent asking about your fear. So I want to pose that question to you from your own book. Christine, what would you do if you were not afraid? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've done a lot of scary things in my life. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, no, I... I I think, you know, I mean, this is a question that I suppose you could say that I constantly mm. ask myself. If I was not afraid, um, I I would continue to be, more, I, I, I would be more creative even than I am, you know. I think that uh, initially I could say that um, expressing my creativity was something that I was afraid of mm. uh, and I had to learn not to be afraid. And then I had to be not afraid to share it even though it wasn't perfect. You know, that mm. was a scary step too. Um, I think that um, it's interesting, you know, you go on Pinterest and I love going on Pinterest to get ideas, but, you know, you would think from going on Pinterest that everybody is able to paint a perfect rock. Everybody is able to write a perfect song. Everybody is able to, you know, everything's perfect. And so we're afraid to um, share the things that aren't perfect. And so one of the decisions I made um, was if I wasn't afraid, I wouldn't be afraid to share, <laughs> you know, to share my imperfections, um, to share my imperfect words, uh, to share my ideas. You know, I, I think that was some of what um, I decided uh, if I wasn't afraid. Um, and if I wasn't afraid, I, you know, wouldn't be afraid to encounter people that were very different from myself and to listen to what they had to say, even if it meant that I was going to have to change my ideas. That was the other thing I think was the big thing uh, in terms of if I wasn't afraid. Because, you know, I think a lot of us are afraid of listening to people who believe differently because we're afraid that we're going to have to change, hmm. you know, or we're afraid that what we've believed for a long time maybe it wasn't quite as dogmatically true as we thought it was. Um, and that's scary. You know, I think that's scary for a lot of us. But, boy, is it liberating when we get beyond that fear and recognizing that there's a whole new world out there that God wants to introduce us to. Christine, this is a great book. And I'll tell you, it. it I, I think I found it as challenging as you did, Bill. And I think 
I like the idea of a lot of these things. Like, I like the idea of being open to change my ideas more than maybe I like changing my ideas. <laughs> but uh, thanks for writing it, and yeah. thanks for just taking some time to talk with us about it. Yeah. No, oh, you're I, welcome. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to use it uh, with a group in my church this fall. So uh, thank you very much for that. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, yeah. It's been a delight talking to you both. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation and will join us back here next time. Until then, thanks for listening and God bless.